In today's episode, we'll be covering the epic 996 Turbo X50 1000 mile round trip to Le Mans and a front brake upgrade with wheel bearings on the Porsche 924. It's another Woody 924. Welcome back to the show, everybody, and thank you once again for joining me. And it's a beautiful Friday. It's a fantastic Friday. The sun is shining, and it's time for a podcast. So without further ado, it is time to get into some of the areas that I've been promising to cover for quite some time now. So we'll leave that aside in terms of how long it's taken to get this podcast done. But we are here. We're we're ready. We're about to go. So... With that, the uh, the big trip this year was to Le Mans, and I know it was a few months ago now, but uh, overall the trip was fantastic. And if you weren't aware, this year that uh, Le Mans ran was a big one. It was a hundred years anniversary, so steeped in history. Well worth a read if you uh, have a few hours on the history of Le Mans, because um, it is one of the most uh, epic histories in terms of race terms, and yeah, we uh, we decided a, a vast amount of us. I think there was about thirty-one of us, or maybe thirty-two of us in total, that ended up going down there. And uh, we all took what we could in terms of the best cars for you know this memorable sort of occasion that uh, does not come around that often every hundred years, as the, <laughs> the title would suggest. And uh, I decided to take the 996 Turbo X50 down, which uh, was fantastic. Now, if you've been following some of my videos on YouTube and some of my previous podcasts, you'll know that I've gone through a little bit of a roller coaster with the 996 and uh, in particular the running of it. And I'd done a bunch of work to try and alleviate the issues uh, what I originally thought were the issues were broken coil packs. It's quite well documented that uh, on 996s, the original coil packs can give up after sort of 30,000, 40,000 miles, uh, you know, with heat cycles and so on. And generally what happens is they they can crack inside the unit itself. So visually from the outside, it looks okay, but the actual unit itself within can be, uh, can be broken. And... That's initially what I thought. So I went through all the motions of changing the coil packs, spark plugs. So it's a big old job, full YouTube video on that if you want to check it out. So please do. And uh, it's it, it carried on starting, but having the issues of sort of misfiring and then cutting out after time. So that then led me to the fuel system, which I then uh, did a whole bunch of sort of fault finding on that and tracked it down to what I thought was the fuel pump, but actually it turned out to be just the pipework around the fuel pump sender unit and uh, swell pot unit. So there is a, like I say, a whole video on that in terms of me changing it all out. But once I changed that out, prepped the system, everything was back to normal. The car was working fantastically well. So that uh, meant the car was ready, fuel pump done, cool packs done, uh, spark plugs done, Car had full service, which was great, and we were all set for Le Mans. So I think I set off, uh, it was 
pretty early. I think it was like a half past two in the morning set off and uh, I was catching, I think, the 5.30 train. It was one of the early ones. But uh, from there, what was quite good fun is that when you do these types of trips, certainly to big events like this, you, you tend to pick up a lot of sort of friends on the way down, you know, sort of driving uh companions or little racers that sort of thing and what was interesting is i picked up very early on actually as i came off the i think it was the m25 onto the m20 and there was a there was a lot of crazy roadworks at the time because there was all various diversions and that happening but i picked up a 964 well look what looked like a 964 turbo but i think it was a 964 that had uh had an aftermarket aero kit look it really did look the part it was in a sort of an aqua blue so it obviously gone through quite some work and it looked looked really smart and we were sort of uh well swapping and changing literally all the way down to the channel tunnel and i think he got on to maybe the earlier train than i was on but uh what was interesting, it was funny, um, sort of fast forwarding a little bit here, is that the the campsite where we stay uh, as a group, it's at the end of the Mole Sand Strait. Uh, he was there as well. So of all that, you know, that, that person was, you know, in and around where I live. And we drove down sort of in tandem, not knowing each other. And there they were at the same campsite. So, you know, one of those things. But um, yeah, good fun, good fun. I... Um, I picked up the rest of the group uh, as I caught an earlier train. I picked up the rest of the group on the other side in France, and the list of cars that we managed to take down this year was pretty impressive. It was it was a good mix. So we had obviously mine, the the Turbo X50. We had a GT4 Cayman. We had a 928 GTS, super rare, really nice car as well. That's owned by Nige, who's been on the show before. We had a Cayman 987S. We had an Aston V12 Rapid. We had an iX BMW, the new electric one, Big Beastie, uh, which uh, was interesting because it was the only electric car that came down. So it was, um, yeah, I, I guess because it was such a long trip as well, the the view of f- sort of petrol combustion engine versus electric and how you travel down and where you have to stop and not stop was quite interesting, actually. So I'll touch on that a little bit later. We had a mini John Cooper Works and a Civic that uh, is from the 1990s that's had a sort of full race spec uh, resto done on it. So a quite quite an in- interesting mix of cars there and equally lots of fun as well. Some with aftermarket exhaust like mine and uh, there's some fantastic tunnels that you go down through when you're driving. And you get to, uh, yeah, show off a little bit, maybe. <laughs> I'm sure the French love it. And the, the interesting thing about Le Mans is there is a huge contingent of uh, UK cars that, that go for this race. I, I want to say it's like quarter of a million, half a million or so UK people go. It's it's a pretty, pretty impressive amount. And from that perspective, you get to see all sorts of interesting cars as you drive down so i think the highlight for me as i was going through border control is there was a a porsche gt1 and they are at best very rare in the best of times to to see but uh, this one had full race livery 
looked the part, sounded the part, um, and very few, I believe, are roadworthy as well. So whether it was, um, it, it's always the case, you know, was it a replica that's been built or was it an original that uh, was converted and so on? Uh, the sad thing, though, is on the other side of the tunnel, I think probably maybe 10, 15 miles outside of uh, getting off the, the Channel Tunnel train, it was uh, on the side with all the yeah the hoods up so it looked like it it came to a bit of a stop so never knew if it got down or not but um this is the joy of yeah going to le mans um many cars or or many cars try to make the journey and many don't uh make it for whatever reason but uh it's always a a good uh yeah good crack to to try and get there as they say um so we we covered off the cars what was um also interesting is that the roads you know from the uk to france i mean wow we um we don't get a good deal here in the uk that's that's probably the best way to describe it for all the money that we pay in taxes and you know not just from wages but sort of taxing from car ownership you know which you hope a lot of that money goes back into the system to try and make roads better and all of that good stuff. You, you don't realize until you get into sort of Europe how poor our roads really are um, from every aspect. And uh, it also makes you realize that the cars that we buy that are very European based in terms of their build, design, and so on, uh, they, they really sort of find a new level of enjoyment when you get to drive them in Europe there there's you know there's a lot to be said about how nice the roads are not just the motorways but the sort of back roads and you know the lack of potholes the smooth surfaces the way they're they're built uh it, it's an in, yeah it's an enjoyable experience if you do get to drive in Europe and uh I really you know from, from my perspective I really enjoyed the fact that I took the the 911 because it was just a a very different experience with the car and I really loved it. I mean, yeah, we'll get into some of that in a moment, but um, I think what was interesting is they do, you know, we, we took a mix of both sort of back, let's call it A roads and B roads, as we would say here in the UK and uh, some of the toll roads, which are their sort of main motorways, which of course they, um, they cost. Um, I wouldn't say they are astronomical. I mean, you, depending on which, part that you join and, and where you come off it's sort of calculated in that that way so you you could be on there for you know a huge amount of time and you could be sort of racking up the price but generally i i remember sort of paying between 20 and 30 euros for most of our sort of on and offs and uh, you know they're pretty long stints that we were doing on there but they're so smooth everything is just you know so nice um, I can only assume that they put most of the money that they get from the tolls back into the upkeep of the roads. But um, yeah, very. It, it, I highly recommend trying it out. And you know, if you do get a chance to drive in Europe and you've got a sports car or you know some car that you like, you're sort of thrashing about. It's it's well worth taking over to uh, to Europe. And of course, when you get over into the Channel Tunnel, you're you're in France, and you can you know turn left and go up towards you know Brussels or. You can go into other parts of Europe, down into Germany and you know Switzerland, Austria, and all those great places that you know, a lot of TV programs have covered as some of the best driving roads in uh, in the world, and they are really, really good. So yeah, well worth it. Um, 
I think one of the highlights for me is, you know, one getting down there with all the, the, the team and all the other guys driving. It was it was great to see so many different cars on the way down. And, you know, people do make an effort. I think as we came off the train, the Lamborghini UK Club, I think we're on the tra- train behind. And, you know, watching 30, 40 Lamborghinis of all shapes and sizes from Aventadors to Hurricanes and all the new ones that are sort of making their way out. I mean, millions and millions of pounds worth of car, but everyone driving them, like, uh, I wouldn't say like they stole them, but they they were all enjoying themselves, right? It's just nice to see some of these cars that uh, in many respects are designed to be driven at, you know, the, the top of the game, as they say, and so many of these types of cars end up sort of sitting in garages and hiding away for years after years. And some people get to a point where they're sort of too scared to drive them maybe because, you know, they think there's a lot of money tied up in them and they don't want them to depreciate and so on. So it sort of misses the point of owning these cars because they're so well engineered from all these different brands, you know, the amount of R&D that goes into them. It's it's something that people should uh, really just enjoy if you've made the effort to buy. So I think one thing Le Mans really sort of emphasizes and demonstrates is this real collective of people that just want to drive these amazing cars. And, and it's cars from all history, all years, all decades. I mean, you've got cars that, dare I say, uh, back to the 50s, right up to, to modern day, and it's great. And, and there's just sort of this uh, feel-good factor uh, that you experience as you drive down with all these different types of cars sort of around you as you're driving down. I um, I did do the sort of uh, wave the flag to the event type approach where I put a couple of uh, stickers on the side of the car, big ones, um, seem to go down well. You know, it's all part of the game, I guess. <laughs> and uh, they lasted well. I, I think it was quite funny, actually, when I when I got back from the thousand miles. When you peel these things off, and they're they're vinyl, so they come off nice and easy. So there's no no sort of worry on the paintwork or stuff like that. But overall, the uh, the car showed how dirty it got over those thousand miles. And uh, yeah, I, I was is quite surprising actually how much stuff you pick up um even when there's not really bad weather and it's beautiful sunshine and so on but anyway that's uh, the joy of driving i guess um one of the uh sort of highlights i guess of the event not only with the guys and sort of at the campsite is a place that we go on the friday so before the sort of race kicks off on the saturday we go down to fantastic little hotel which is called Hotel de France and uh, I forget the area that it's in but it's about 20 I think it's about 25 kilometers south west of Le Mans track and uh, it's famous uh, area because it's got a square a very small square outside of the hotel it's like a little town and it's very famous for a lot of the racing teams who used to use it as a headquarters back in, uh, you know, the sort of race days of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, maybe even 90s, I think. But um, famously, it used to be the Aston Martin team that uh, spent a lot of time there. Um, I think John Wine, I think, is the the guy who used to own the, the teams back then. But what was interesting is a lot of the 
cars used to be prepped in the car parks um, at the back of the hotel by the mechanics and that. And then they they drive the cars down to the track ready for the race. I mean, it's uh, it, it's back when it was sort of uh, oil and uh, yeah, oil and tea on the side building cars uh, in the back of hotels, which is you know sort of fantastic legacy and history to the Le Mans race itself. Um, and it's and it's not unusual to see all sorts of interesting cars down there and and also people you know so Derek Bell is always there each year we we see him and he's usually there with a a bunch of friends that uh, obviously did all the racing back in the day when Derek was racing but it's just a fantastic atmosphere and you get this uh, huge amount of you know interest of cars and people and just general like you know car chat and you know we hang out we uh, get chatting with loads of other people. You see some of these great cars that sort of get wheeled out for Le Mans down there and you get to speak to the owners and stuff. And then we have like a nice lunch and everything as the, as the team and the group. And it's just a, it's a really great way to spend, you know, a, a Friday lunchtime and uh, you know, you get to drive all through these back sort of a roads, which are super cool. So it was um, yeah, it's one of the highlights of the trip that we do. And, you know, I encourage anyone who's ever been, to Le Mans or is thinking of going to Le Mans to, to check it out, right? It's uh, it's one of those really cool places to be. Um, I mean, I won't go too much into the Le Mans race. I think, you know, it's it's well documented now because uh, it's it's definitely a few months. I think, what, June, back back in the June that we went. Uh, Ferrari took it. But the, the highlight for me is watching, you know, this new series sort of become more mature now, which is the hypercar series and what you'll see as the uh, sort of world endurance series continues the sort of drumbeat around this is more and more manufacturers getting involved. And now that the hypercar sort of been built around four, four sort of chassis and engine types, uh, it's put a price cap on, which means all the manufacturers are coming back to Le Mans in a big way, um, which is fantastic to see because when you add the LMP one cars, the the price of those cars and you know running a team became sort of um out of scope for so many of the manufacturers but now it's sort of price capped everyone from bmw you know porsche back you know the likes of lamborghini aston all these guys you know aston with the valkyrie and stuff everyone's coming back with these cars to uh to enter into the hypercar series which uh you know didn't disappoint it was fantastic to watch you know the swapping and changing between all the uh, sort of several teams that were at the top and i mentioned this on the the previous podcast but uh you know ferrari did it and it and i think it's the first time in like 50 years they won so you know huge congratulations to those guys and uh you know the famous ferrari name up in the lights at le mans was uh you know always a big a big deal uh Porsche, I think, you know, just had their issues, had their, their challenges. Uh, the Cadillac guys did really well. They've got a fantastic sounding car, looks looks the business. Um, but I think the star of the show, even though it wasn't sort of necessarily on the podium, podium was the uh, the NASCAR, which was uh, Jensen Button was, was driving with uh, a few of the other guys. And uh, I mean, that, th- you know, that thing just sounded like thunder going around the track. And if you haven't heard it or seen it, you should uh, yeah check out a YouTube video on the NASCAR for Le Mans because what a car. <laughs> they, um, they did an epic uh, amount of work to get that car set for that race. And uh, there was a time where I think they nearly didn't continue because i think there was a problem in the trans you know transmission or something like that but uh 
what a yeah what a sounding car and when you're sleeping by a, a track and a campsite you know it's it's good to take earplugs but uh, even when you have the earplugs in you can still feel the vibrations through, <laughs> through the the ground when that thing uh, was going past so yeah it was all good all good so um the car overall the 996 mm-hmm. yeah just it didn't miss a heartbeat it was just fantastic i enjoyed every minute of the drive i um i originally thought you know the, the interesting thing about turbos on the the 911s is they they sort of carry this I would sort of say a badge of being like a GT type car. Um, the GT series of 911s tend to be sort of the race track. And, you know, if you want to be a bit adventurous and, uh, you know, um, outlandish, I guess, on back roads, they're the ones to do it in. But, you know, I think turbos in their own right, can do a lot of the really good stuff 911s do but what they do really well is they are very good at cruising and uh, you can sort of sit back and just enjoy the miles because the engine just eats up the miles so easily I was I was averaging about 28 miles to the gallon which I thought was well I I thought it was way better than what I was going to get I have to say I mean that's a 475 brake horsepower i've obviously had all the ducting done on the car the car graphic uh, exhaust system on it obviously new fuel pump and all the spark plugs and everything's all done as well but um i was cruising we i think between me and the 928 who i spent a lot of time with driving i think we were very close i think he was managing probably early 20s early to mid 20s so i was coming in at 28 mpg and that's on a 3.6 liter twin turbo so you know i I can't complain about that i think uh it it beat my expectations in terms of how much uh fuel uh i was going to consume and how many stops so yeah overall it did pretty well i think uh the other thing i was really quite interested about driving is i've got what i guess you could call like the original tombstone seats that 911s have so you get generally three flavors you get the the standard seat which is sort of um, a tombstone style then you get like the sports seat which gives you sort of the shoulder rest it's like an extended uh, top part of the seat that sort of your shoulders can relax back on and that would be probably the only upgrade or the only wish i would have for my cars to have those types of seats the sports seats which just give you a little bit more shoulder um, support now i was thinking that during my journey without that type of support it could get a bit tiring and a bit sort of uh yeah a bit of uh ants in your pants type feel but actually overall i um i was pleasantly surprised i thought the seats were actually very comfortable the support i didn't really miss as i thought i would um owning a couple of other cars including like the gti i um which comes with really great you know sort of supportive seats um i was yeah pleasantly surprised that the 911 seats were really nice and uh they did did the job really well um the the cabin's a great place to be um the 996 overall i think uh I think it's you know it, it got mixed reviews when it first came out about its quality and stuff, but I actually I'm really quite smitten with the interior. I think um, 
mine being the later Mark II of the the nine nine six, it comes with the full leather sort of upgrade. So everything in there's leather and carbon. So it, it's a nice place to be. I think obviously the the tech now feels a little bit dated compared to what we have around us today. But overall, it was a good place to be. The the nav system. Well, it did its job. Um, you know, I tended to follow everyone else. To be fair, but it was uh, it was okay. Um, I'm sure if you went into smaller back roads and that, I wouldn't really know what might be going on because of you know changes from years back. But uh, overall, I think the the car did a great job. It didn't miss a heartbeat. It drove fantastically on all types of roads, and yeah, I had a really really good experience with the car overall. So I think. Um, with that, you know, if if it were sort of been marked out of ten, I would I would give the car nine out of ten. Um, I think it, it ticked so many boxes that I didn't expect it to, and you know, a thousand miles sort of over, a, you know, I think it was what four days was, um, you know, a fantastic test for it. So, I um, yeah, my my sort of final piece on this would be that you've got to get these cars onto European roads to really truly appreciate how good they can be so with that trip under the belt there were a few issues that sort of came up from a mechanical perspective that i thought actually it might be worth doing them through the winter so that's what we'll be doing in the next couple of months what were they so the first one i started to get what i would call not necessarily a wheel wobble from the tires but when i got into sort of spirited driving and applied the brake in a heavy way there was a lot of feedback that felt like maybe some of the suspension components were a little adrift so after a little bit of poking around I've made a list of things I'm going to do in the winter months to maybe address what I think is a little bit of wondering on some of the suspension components so mainly at the front we have the front drop links, so we'll be replacing those. Also followed by the outer tie rod ends. So those are the ones that, uh, if they start to fail, can give your steering a little bit of a loose feel, but equally under heavy braking or spirited driving, they can also give a, you know, a sort of an odd feeling through the steering wheel that you're not completely in control, almost like a floaty feeling. And I will check the calipers and front brakes. The front brakes are actually relatively new. They haven't seen much mileage um, since that. So I don't think there's an issue there with the disc being warped. And when you run your fingers across them front and back, they're very smooth and shiny. So they don't show any signs of the traditional warping that you would uh, expect to see. But equally, I've got to double check the calipers to make sure there isn't any sort of stickiness going on with the sort of pistons or anything like that. I mean, during normal driving conditions and motorway and slowing down and so on, everything was okay. It was just when you started to push on and get a bit spirited, there was a there was a feedback that just put you on, on edge a little bit. It didn't give you the confidence you want when you're <laughs> maybe uh, going a, a few clicks. I should also say that all the parts that I've bought are... Febby Bilstein so I I chose them because really they're of a quality that 
even from OEM perspective, are generally fitted to brand new cars, and a lot of Porsche use that as a sort of a main supplier. So from that perspective, great reviews, making sure that I'm staying with the best OEM type replacements as possible for the car is something I want to ensure sticks with my 996 Turbo, um, especially with its uh, type of performance. Uh, the other part of the car I'm turning sort of to the back end and that is to the rear brake system so again I'm doing drop links at the back so I'm doing front and back drop links because those are easily replaced and parts that can give the car feel you know sort of a wallowing feeling if uh, they're not up to spec and they've got a bit of play in them because obviously it's on your anti-roll bars front and back so you want those in the best possible condition all the time so easy fix generally cheap as well to to replace but um yeah replacing the rear discs and pads and i've gone for full brembo on those as well so just again sort of looking at precautionary there is a slight lip that started to appear on the back brakes and also if your back brakes aren't doing what they should be and again looking at calipers pistons when i do this but if there's any type of warp feeling you might source also get a, a you know a type of shuddering that can come from the back and feel like it's going down through the car to the front you know so your brakes are very important both front and rear to be in the best possible condition certainly on performance cars like these so i i opted to to get them and those are two jobs that um i'll do the front end first and then the back end and do a couple of videos on that so people can see the steps i go through to um yeah get those all done and dusted but overall that is everything that i will do on the car and i'll get um once i once i've done that i i will get a, a four-wheel alignment done on the car as well just just for sort of uh, peace of mind I guess just to make sure that everything is lined up the way it should be because funny enough if your alignment is out as well you can have perfect brakes perfect discs pads pistons suspension can be brand new but if your geometry is out on your four-wheel alignment you will get shuddering and poor brake performance and poor steering feel and all of that and that's something I had on the 924 once I rebuilt all the suspension with the gas setup I had on that it wasn't until I got the four-wheel alignment that the car totally transformed overnight so it's uh what I'm going to get done on the the 911 as well once I've done all that work ready for sort of the new season next year so that's everything on the 911 and now to move on to the 924 so Again, sort of keeping with the same theme of things, I do need to give the 924 a new lease of life on the front brakes. And it's something I've touched on, I think, in previous episodes that I needed to do. just haven't got around to doing it. But uh, again, I got uh, the front brakes, pads, discs, and also wheel bearings with this one. So... You've heard me say this before, but just as a, a quick reminder, when you do the discs and pads on the old 924, it does mean that you have to play around with the bearings, which sort of sit within the hub of the disc itself. So it doesn't just slot on and off like normal disc brakes do on more modern cars. You, uh, you've you got to pack some wheel bearings in and around the uh, 
the hub of this uh, disc that you you buy. So it's fairly heavy. They're not anything deluxe. You know, these are pretty old school stuff, but uh, they they do the job for what the car is and how light the car is. So can't complain from that side. But I've just been putting it off because it's the whole sort of the whole hub piece has got to come apart with the bearings and everything. And yeah, I've I've just got to get on and do it. So I will do a full YouTube video on this as well because I think that will be very useful for those of you that want to do a similar job on your 924. Uh, I've done the back brakes and a video on that. So the front ones are due for a video as well. So it's it's good timing. Again, that will be a winter job in the coming months to sort out. Uh, the other thing that I've done on the car as well is really just fine tune the engine. So these cars have the old sort of Bosch system or K-Jet systems of uh, sort of the 80s and early 90s where you had lots of mechanical parts to the fuel system. And, you know, they, they can be pretty robust when they're working well, but if they're not working well, they can be a bit of a dog and you spend a lot of time sort of fault finding and chasing your tail on this stuff because it isn't a case of plugging in an OBD meter or system to give you sort of a reading of what could be potentially wrong with different sensors in the engine and the system and the fuel and so on uh, this time you have to sort of go and fault find yourself and it's very mechanical so one of the big issues that tends to happen with 924s is this system sort of falls out of sync a little bit and between the airflow meter the fuel distributor and the warm-up regulator and injectors, you need to find a happy balance and make sure that everything is sort of working in harmony to get the best possible output for the engine. So I've done quite a few videos and spent quite a lot of time on warm-up regulators. They are quite simplistic in their design and their form, but they can succumb to being a little bit temperamental with dirt and so on. So I've gone through all of that. That's all set. And you can tweak the adjustment on the pressure that it gives and there's a little fix that you can do on these which um, means you drill into the unit and add a few sort of bits and pieces just to adjust up and down the the part that uh, your metal heat plate sits on or metal metallic strip and by raising it up or down it uh, will adjust the the fuel pressure so there's a little bit on that that I've that I've touched on in previous videos so anyway I've rebuilt refurbished all the warm-up regulator that's good I know that the the fuel distributor unit is good there's no leaks everything is pretty airtight on that or say airtight fuel tight on that and uh, is working as it should be the the last piece was the airflow meter and there's a little plate that sits within that and that plate basically when you turn the engine and your cylinders are starting to suck for air that plate should raise up to allow the air that it needs through to one start the engine and then keep the engine running now that plate needs to sit very flush with the sort of cone that it sits within the metal cone and mine for some reason was a bit too far down in the cone so it was flush but it was it was too far down so when you tried to start the engine it wouldn't lift enough to give enough air to create you know the fuel air mixture that 
is required to start the engine and so on. So it really struggled to start. And this is what you can find as an issue with cold start. Now, there's a heap of information that I've covered in previous videos, but is out there in forums and so on about sort of cold start issues, which not only can be from fuel pumps to distributor to airflow meter to make sure that you get the right pressure which is about 40 psi plus to open up your injectors for the thing to fire um, and that's also based on your thermo switch um, which will operate a fifth injector called the cold start valve if it detects that the coolant is not warm enough or the system's not warm enough so it's sort of extra fuel which is all well and good, right? You can put in as much fuel, but if you've got no air in the mix as well, then you're just sort of throwing in a lot of fuel, which obviously back in the 80s used to mean lots of flooding and all of that good stuff. So the system is designed that you don't get the flood effect because it's only on a 10 second delay from the thermo switch. But this is all based on the fact that that airflow meter has to be set correctly to lift enough to allow the right amount of air through now mine as i said was too far down what's really easy about these systems is you can adjust things by bending bits of metal i mean it really is that easy so there's a little bouncy spring clip that the plate sits upon and you can literally lift the plate up and and pull with your hand the spring up or down to adjust it so it just fits flush with the bottom of the cone, but not too far into the cone of the, the metal sides of uh, the airflow meter. Mine was a little bit too far down, raised it up to its uh, sort of level fitting or, or setting, started the engine and bang, started straight away. So th these things are very difficult if you don't know what you're sort of chasing, as in chasing your tail, um, but they're very simple in terms of fixes once you do find generally the problem because it's very mechanical. There's not, you know, lots of delicate or what I would call intricate sort of systems with electronics or sensors or, you know, got a plug to find. So it, it like I say, it's very mechanical. So you can generally get away with tweaking things you know by hand and and so on with a lot of this stuff so that is now fixed the engine starts perfectly on cold start and then the other side of that is to make sure that the system is set also for hot start now this is again well documented in a lot of forums out there that you can get sort of a, a lack of pressure there's a you know discussions around you know the system just becoming vaporized so you know you're not getting fuel into the system because of the heat and so on there's there's a few other bits to it but ultimately you you then can't start the engine after driving it because of what they call a hot start issue so i've addressed that as well so let the car run gone out for a drive turned it off leave it you know sitting for you know five to ten minutes and different intervals between just to make sure and each time it starts first time so hot start good cold start good engine finally tuned with um the uh, strobe light <laughs> i totally forgot what that was then so the strobe light's all done and again very much um old school on this you know finding timing lights and making sure it's all on the flywheel and so on and uh, the engine's running great so Everything is good. The The only one I would say that sometimes I think is probably a little bit of a miss is the 
auxiliary air valve, which is a valve that basically opens wide when the engine's cold to allow more revs into the engine. This is sort of your your fast idle, I guess, when engines are cold. And as the engine warms up, the, the plate inside of this valve starts to close. So closing down the air, reducing the revs down to what should be the normal rev range of around 900, 950, I guess, um, RPM for, for idle on a 2 litre 924. So that is something I've looked at. I've got a couple of these units. They, they all look pretty good and they tend to work pretty well and you can put them in the fridge to make sure that the unit opens up and then take them out and you should watch the the valve sort of close to a smaller as it heats up in in sort of the normal temperatures outside but uh, they all seem to be doing that but I'm still sometimes getting a, a not such a good I would say rev range when I'm first starting from cold start so it's probably a little bit more investigation I have to do there otherwise everything else is perfect cars running great I've done quite a few miles in it this year, so it's it's had a good it's had a good few outings, good few shows this year. So everything I hope to do in the car, I have done. But I'm now in a position where I think I do want to sell it. So I've put the car up into a couple of the forum groups that uh, I'm a part of, just to gauge if there's any interest in the car. Uh, so quite a few people have said that they, they'd be interested. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in a 924 that's well-documented online, it's had basically a rebuild from ground up, full respray, what, four years ago, everything mechanical from suspension to engine, exhaust, everything has been done on the car. So it's in fantastic condition. It just clicks over to its 40th birthday as well. So it's MOT exempt from next year, which is fantastic for the future owner. Um, the only thing I've not done on the car is the interior front seats, which have got a slight split on either side between the leatherette vinyl and the material itself. I found a supplier of the material. They've got some in stock, which is local to, to me in Hampshire and uh, they can do the seats as in replace them but uh, I want to give the owner the next owner the the sort of option to do what they feel is right for their ownership right it's uh, it's as original as the car can be um, all documented with certification from Porsche with everything that it left the factory with so that's all as original as it can be so I don't really want to change the originality of the car because of everything it's come with. Um, even the respray was done in the original Copenhagen blue that it left the factory in. So I've kept it as original as possible, but it's up to the, the new owner if they want to change the interior or go for more race seats, you know, sporty seats and so on. And that's a decision they can make. So the car is going up for sale. It's, it's available now. If you're interested, please do get in touch. Um, you know, you can check out on my Instagram, Witty924, or on my YouTube, 94, Witty94, and uh, get in contact that way. But uh, otherwise, that is the 924 update. So, yeah, thanks for sticking around with me on this journey on this episode because, yeah, it's been, what, 40, almost 45 minutes. And uh, in the coming weeks, I do have a few more lined up. So we're going to get a bit more of a rhythm going, which is great. I know some of you have been saying, hey, where have you gone? What have you been doing? What's been going on? So, yeah, this is a, a quick update 
for those um, that have been asking. But equally, next week, I will have Max on the show. And Max is a true sort of petrol head. He, uh, myself and Nigel have sort of been the, the trio that have been uh, talking all things cars recently. But uh, I had to get Max on the show because he really does know his stuff. He's He gets quite technical about stuff. He's, he's pretty cool in terms of uh, his history of cars, what he's owned, but equally what he does to the cars. And I think you'll really enjoy listening to how he thinks about the cars he's owned, what he's done to them, how he's done it, and also sort of the engineering aspects of uh, some of the stuff that he's uh, he's done. So with that, thanks for sticking around, and the next podcast will be along very soon.